You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I remember reading a story about Michelangelo as he painted the ceiling, the famous ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which is the unfolding story of God's redemption through the Old and New Testament, the story of God that centers on the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But I think we forget how dependent we are on technology when we see something like that, specifically the technology of lighting. That that entire thing was painted without any kind of you know, synthetic lighting like uh, light bulbs and spotlights and floodlights, like these sort of things. In the 1500s, when Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel, he would try to brighten the ceiling through candles and votives. But as he stood on the scaffolding, his shadow would often be cast onto the walls and obstruct his view. His shadow got in the way of him seeing clearly. No matter what he did. Until he came up with this brilliant idea and created, and I'm still not even sure how this worked, but some sort of like head lantern or, you know, sort of lantern in front of him that would hold a candle that would divert his own shadow so that he could see and paint with precision. So that his own shadow was not getting in the way. And I think what this illustrates really is the challenge that the church has faced from the very beginning. The threat of our own shadows obscuring our view of Jesus Christ. We are continuing in our series on the solas, the five solas, the alone statements, which are Protestant Protestant declarations of Christian truth that sort of frames the life of faith and faithfulness. There are a lot of things that contend for ultimate. This is ultimate, no, this is ultimate, no, this is ultimate, but this brings things into perspective for us. And today, we are highlighting the foundational truth of solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. Now, what we see from history is that the light of the gospel must not just shine into the darkest corners of an evil world, but also into the shadows that are cast by the church itself. Little history lesson, during the time of the medieval church, the belief was that the human nature had been injured by sin, but not necessarily completely disabled. 
And the idea was that people must sort of cooperate with God. His grace being infused into people's lives in a way that would enable them to do good works, good merits, good deeds that would then please God and make us right with God. And where was this infusing, sort of enabling grace to be found? Well, the church in Rome said, look no further. The grace that you need to enable you to be right with God is found here. And the church positioned itself to be the sole source of access to life with God. And these means of grace were found exclusively in baptism, the Eucharist, and penance, all of which the church controlled. The church and the priests became the sort of arbiters or the negotiators of God's grace and access to God became a labyrinth of religious activities like paying alms and pilgrimages and other good deeds. The church which was intended to be the community of faith that highlighted the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ and called to shine the light on all that God has done through his son Jesus Christ inched their way into the position of being the middleman. Oh, almost fell off the stage there. Forget how small this little thing is. They got in the way saying, access to God now comes through us. Now, it's easy for me on my small, small little podium here to, to t point back 500 years, but you know this is something I think that's seen most clearly in retrospect. The question I have is what are they gonna say about us in 500 years? What are the ways that we've inched our way into sort of being the middleman? But the Protestant reformers studied the scriptures and really they studied their own lives and realized that sin doesn't just impair us or injure us, it deadens us completely. And we don't need an infusion of grace coming to us through human hands. We need the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to raise us to new life. And for his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, to be credited to us in order to make us right with God. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can forgive us. Only Jesus can reconcile us. Only Jesus can restore us. It is through faith in Christ alone that we are made whole. It is in Christ alone that we're made right with God. It is through Christ alone that we offer our prayers to God. And it is in Christ alone that we find hope both in this life and in eternity. Which means that we've got to get out of the way. A pastoral mentor of mine, I love this, he, he begins every sermon like this, Lord, get me out the way. Get me out the way. Our pride, our entitlement, even our best efforts, look, God, look at all these things we've done for you. Out of the way so that Christ, the one and only mediator between us and God can be seen clearly and brightly. Two points if you're taking notes this morning. We're looking at distorting the image and displaying the glory. Let's look first at distorting the image. Look with me again in verses one through two. One through two. Therefore, 
having this ministry, what ministry? Look back at your Bibles there, the header there on chapter three, the ministry of the new covenant. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, not because we deserve it, because God is merciful, we do, new, we do not lose heart. We keep going. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, 2012, uh, a woman in Borgia, Spain, uh, grew concerned about the state of a painting of Jesus titled Behold the Man in a local church that had begun to deteriorate. I don't know how old this was, but this fresco or whatever, hundreds of years old, had begun to deteriorate. She was very, someone smiling, they've seen this before. They're, she was very concerned about it. So sweet Cecilia tried to spruce it up again, tried to brighten it again, and the result was not very good at all. It's, it's actually maybe like ironic and abstract, but I don't think that that was the intention. Paul recognizes and clearly states here that any attempt to alter, any attempt to add to, any attempt to spruce up, any attempt to amend the clear message of Jesus in any way is to distort the image entirely. And I would add, bring a mockery to who Jesus is. He describes this as tampering with God's word. Lord, have mercy if that is ever said about me. He tampers with God's word. Paul says he refuses to distort the image in any way. Verse three through four. And even if our gospel is veiled, even if people are having a hard time seeing it and understanding, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Difficult words. Not just lost or not just like confused perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan is referred to here as the God of this world. And what we're told is that his objective his goal, his aim in this world is to keep people from beholding the glory of Jesus and from seeing him clearly. He seeks to veil that vision. He seeks to conceal the light of Christ. But how? This is interesting because it's not necessarily through a complete diversion. It's through distortion. It's through obscuring. It's through confusion. It's through misrepresenting. Satan cannot diminish the glory of Christ, but he can obscure our vision of him. The devil doesn't need you to turn away from Jesus completely. In fact, that may actually undermine his attempts. He may be able to secure his objective in you continuing to go to church and showing up to Bible study, and listening to K-Love, and listening to your favorite preacher's podcast, and on and on and on. The goal is to get our eyes on a distorted image of Jesus, a partially true version of Jesus, because he knows a partially true Jesus is a false hope entirely. 
How does the enemy of our soul distort that image? I've shared about this book by now enough to just be confident you've read it. But if you have not, in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, duh, um, it, it follows the story of a seasoned demon who is training his apprentice nephew demon in all the various attempts of coming against Christians and undermining their faith. And in one of his letters, he says this, the real trouble about the life of your patient is, uh, the, the life your patient is living is that it is merely Christianity or purely Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and fill in the blank. The enemy knows what we forget and it's to add anything at all to Christ is to subtract from him entirely. Anything added to Jesus subtracts from him entirely. Now today, there are a number of things that we may add to this list, Christianity and my sexual identity. Christianity and my own individual expression. Christianity and nationalism. But here's the problem. Christianity and does not save. There is no hope in eternity found in Christianity and. And Satan is quite content to keep us in a state of Christianity and. Now, does this mean that pressing issues in our lives don't matter? No. It means that our salvation does not depend on these things. When Christ is all, when Christ is ultimate, when it is truly solus Christus, Christ alone, then and only then are we in the position to then care for and address the many important issues that are in our lives and in our world. Now, another way of the image of Christ being distorted in our lives is by making Christian faith all about us. Verse five, for what we proclaim is not what? Ourselves, but Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus's sake. So of all the things that we think of getting in the way of our relationship with God, all of the distractions, all of the things that eclipse the glory of God in our lives, I think the last thing that we think about is ourselves. When we think about all the distractions to faith, we talk about the world, we talk about entertainment, we talk about social media, we talk about society, we talk about all these things, but do we consider ourselves? Like illustrated in that Michelangelo uh, illustration, our vision of Christ is, I think, most often obscured by us. Now, one way to describe the human condition is what theologians of the past called incurvatus in C. I promised last week no more Latin. I broke that promise, uh, but I, I think I promised no more after this. Um, but they called it incurvatus in C, which means we are helplessly curved in on ourselves. What a way to describe the sinful human condition. Just like bent in. I think this is widely accepted, like the, the myth of narcissists, right? Just so enamored with self in a mortal sort of defeating way. 
Martin Luther once said, our nature is so curved in upon itself at its deepest levels that it not only bends the gifts of God towards itself, it seeks everything, including God, only for itself. In other words, we we don't just take the good things of life and make it all about us. We take the creator of life himself and try to make him about us. Even Jesus can be used as a means to our own end. We can make Christianity about what we think about Jesus or what we feel about Jesus or our own expressions of how Jesus should be seen what we think Jesus should say, what we think Jesus should do, what we don't think Jesus should do, what we bring to Jesus, what Jesus, you know, what we get out of Jesus. We make it all about us. We make it about our comforts. We make it about our goals. We make it about our dreams. We make it about our personalities. We make it about us. And this impacts the way that we approach reading scripture. It impacts the way that we come to church on Sunday. It impacts the way that we relate to God in prayer. It even impacts the way that we relate to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It changes everything. When we occupy the place of center, we become the object of worship. It's it's no longer about glorying in Christ. It's about glorying in ourselves. And here's the devastating part. When it's all about us and we think God exists all for us, then we start expecting everyone else to follow suit. This is the arrangement. This is the deal, right? You're here for me. You're a prop in my center stage. And what happens in that that unfortunate tailspin or that incurvatus in C what we end up doing is we forfeit our truest Christian identity. Or let me, let me amend that statement. One of our true Christian identities, it's one that's spelled out in this passage, servants. Servants. We can't be servants when it's all about us. And maybe to reverse engineer things, if we are struggling to serve or we refuse to serve, chances are Christianity has become about us. We will never grow in our faith. We're never going to grow in love. Um, we're never going to grow in the kind, into the kinds of people that we want to be or that we were intended to be so long as we're making Christian faith about us. But Paul presents here a wild idea. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And what that means is that I am not Lord. He is primary. Guess what? I'm not Christ is center. Guess what? I'm not. In this, may be troubling or difficult, or maybe it even seems obvious, but this is really good news because if it's about me and it's for me and it's all up to me, then I am my only hope and I can only take me to the level to which I already am. I can only take me to where I am. I can never take me past me. Christ alone, who is the image of God, is the one who can change us. Christ alone, who is the image of God, is the only one that can renew us. Christ alone, who is the image of God, is the only one that is able to effectively transform us now and for eternity. Remember, what you behold, you will become. 
the object of your worship, the object of your devotion is going to be the sole source of your change for better or for worse. And when it's Jesus, when it is Christ, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will begin to reflect Jesus. We will change. In fact, in the very previous passage, if you look up here in your Bibles to chapter three, verse 18, we're told this, and we all with unveiled face, there's the other side of what Satan does, God unveils the face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. As we look to Christ with unveiled faces, with eyes of faith, we are becoming more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus from one degree of splendor to the next. I thought that was good. Robert Murray McShane, a pastor from the past, a young pastor who died in his 20s, said this, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that he is and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Get such a big, robust, satisfying vision of Jesus to fill your heart that you've got no more room in it for distorted images that bring destruction in our lives. Fill your heart with the soul-satisfying vision of Jesus. Secondly, displaying the glory. Displaying the glory. Where Jesus is proclaimed as Lord, the glory of God is made manifest. Let me repeat that because this, this is what Paul is saying here. And, and for anyone who says, like, well, how do I see the glory of God? And where is the glory of God? And how do we interact with all this glory of God talk? Paul says, where Christ is proclaimed Lord, the glory of God is made manifest. So let me show you the glory of God. Jesus is Lord. Boom, Shekinah glory filling the temple. And for this reason, because this is so important, Paul says in verse two that his job is to set forth the truth plainly. I love churches where the congregation says, make it plain, preacher, make it plain. All right, I'll make it plain. When reality uh, used to be in the old Empire Theater, who was here in the old Empire Theater days? Oh, beautiful, glory. The glory filled the room again. So we, we, we had our start in the old Empire Theater, which was not glorious at all. And it, it wasn't. And um, 
I, I just lived a few blocks behind the Empire Theater, and what I would do is I would make most of my meetings walking meetings. I kind of want to revive this again. And so we would typically just walk around the neighborhood. And I remember taking a walk with an older gentleman in our church, and we're walking down the street, and there was a guy from the neighborhood down in the, on his lawn, like fixing a sprinkler or digging a hole or something like that, down on the ground. We walk by, we say hi, make our you know, neighborly pleasantries, and then out of nowhere, this guy from our church raises his hand and he says, Jesus is Lord. And I was like, wait, what just happened right now? <laughs> what am I witnessing right now? The guy was like saying hi, fixing his sprinkler, and the glory of God has just appeared. Jesus is Lord, and I remember being embarrassed and like, oh my gosh, no more walking meetings for another year with this guy. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he was living with deep conviction about what Paul is saying here. That where Jesus is proclaimed as Lord, the glory of God is present. And he was in a totally bold, like, getting himself out of the way, not self-conscious way, setting forth the truth plainly. This statement right here, Jesus is Lord, is a very powerful statement. This short statement was actually the first Christian creed. Jesus is Lord, it means that Jesus is the king, the divine son of God with all authority in heaven and, and, and on earth. And it was a, it's a theological statement, but it was also a an extremely politically subversive statement because especially in the first century, for disciples to say Jesus is Lord is also a statement that Caesar is not. Jesus is my king. And the responsibility of Christians in the first century, in the 16th century, in the 21st century is to set forth the truth of Jesus boldly and plainly and to not give up even when things get difficult. Jesus is Lord. I sat down with a young man who was raised in our church recently who had spent some time away going through a pretty difficult season in his life. And he shared with me a series of really, really hard things that were going on in his life. And I told him, listen, your future is bright. You have very good days ahead of you. So long as it's all in Christ. But I cannot offer you any assurance I can't offer you any encouragement. I can't offer you any confidence. I can't offer you any hope for now or tomorrow or a month from now or years from now apart from Jesus. You need Jesus and no half measures, but Jesus as Lord of all. And I told him that knowing I had no ability to convince him of that. And I also told him that knowing he had no ability in and of himself to convince himself of that. But I had to trust that the glory of God in the pronouncement of Christ would be sufficient. And this is what gives me hope, verse six. For God, who said, quote, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan can blind, but God alone is the one that gives sight. God alone opens the eyes of the blind. 
Paul is taking us all the way back to the beginning. I'm sure that someone here is saying, why is he always talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Because the apostles always are. And he's taking us all the way back to the beginning, to the creation of time and space, where God himself said over a dark, void existence, let there be light, and there was light. And that same world-shaping, universe-creating voice has now spoken into our hearts through the message of Jesus. The glory of God that is in Christ now shines to the darkest corners of our hearts to bring light and life through the message of the gospel. And so I have a question for you today. What are those dark corners of your heart today that need light and hope? The circumstances, the fears, the insecurities, the wounds, the trauma, the sins, all of it. Those places that need the light of the gospel to shine on them today. What are those places? I just want to invite you, I'm just going to pause and give an awkward moment of silence for you actually to consider that and not skip over that. Holy Spirit, show us now, what are those areas? Maybe there are areas right now that we see and identify immediately. Maybe these are areas that we've repressed and have ignored and have forgotten about for years. And as odd and otherworldly as it sounds, that glory that we're talking about here shines brightest when we look at the cross of Christ. The very place where Christ set aside his glory and was plunged into our darkness. Where he laid it all down, including his life, in order to redeem us from sin, to rescue us from that incurvatusin sea, that condition that we all have of being helplessly curved in on ourselves, in order to draw us out of ourselves and out of our sin and into new life with him in his kingdom. I read a quote last week, and I'll read just a portion of it again today. Your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. As we behold Jesus for who he is, then and only then we discover who we are who we've been searching for our whole lives. Apart from Christ, I have nothing but myself. Apart from Christ, all I have is my sin, my heredity, the worst of my environment, only the, the help of a blind and perishing world. But in Christ, everything that is God's, every promise of God is now mine forever. What I wanna do is I wanna read just portions of scripture and remind you of all that we have in this Christ and Christ alone. And then we'll go to the Lord's table and respond in worship. In Christ, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1. In Christ, I am a light to the world, Matthew 5, 14. In Christ, I am a child of God, John 1, 12. In Christ, I am a friend of God, John 15, 15. 
In Christ, I am chosen and appointed to bear fruit, John 15, 16. In Christ, I am declared righteous, Romans 5.1. In Christ, I am resurrected to new life, Romans 6.5. In Christ, I am no longer a slave to sin, Romans 6.6. In Christ, I am dead to sin and alive to God, Romans 6.11. In Christ, I am a slave of righteousness, Romans 6.17-18. In Christ, I am under no condemnation for my sin, Romans 8. In Christ, I am free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8.2. In Christ, I am a joint heir with him, sharing his inheritance, Romans 8, 17. In Christ, I am the dwelling place of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. In Christ, I am a member of his body, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. In Christ, I am a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. In Christ, I am reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. In Christ, I am entrusted with a message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In Christ, I am the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. In Christ, I am a saint, Ephesians 1.1. In Christ, I am holy and blameless, Ephesians 1.4. In Christ, I am adopted into the family of God, Ephesians 1.5-7. In Christ, I am sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. In Christ, I am spiritually alive, Ephesians 2.5. In Christ, I am seated with him in the heavenly realm, Ephesians 2.6. In Christ, I am God's workmanship made to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. In Christ, I am righteous and holy, Ephesians 4.24. In Christ, I am a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3, 2. This is where you start cheering. In Christ, I am at peace, Philippians 4, 7. In Christ, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God, Colossians 1, 13. In Christ, I am forgiven of my sins, Colossians 1, 14. In Christ, I am set free from the bondage of sin, Colossians 1, 14. In Christ, I am chosen of God, holy and beloved, Colossians 3, 12. In Christ, I am a child of light and not of darkness, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. In Christ, I am an heir to eternal life, Titus 3, 7. In Christ, I am a holy partaker of the heavenly calling, Hebrews 3, 1. In Christ, I am cleansed of sin, Hebrews 13, 12. In Christ, I am a member of the royal priesthood, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2, 9. In Christ, I am an alien and a stranger to the world I live in, 1 Peter 2, 11. In Christ, I am an enemy of the devil. And finally, in Christ, I am, oh, two more. In Christ, I'm a participate in participate in the divine nature, and in Christ, I am what I am by the grace of God. To define ourselves by anything other than Christ alone is foolishness. Foolishness. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge available to us in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places now ours through Christ and Christ alone. Let's get our eyes off this world. Let's get our eyes off others. Let's get our eyes off ourselves and on to Jesus today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.